The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let's pray together. Father, what a joy to celebrate new life in Christ. We thank you for each of those who stood this morning, who've prayed for Ainsley, who've cared for her, who've invested uh, in her life the gospel of, of your son Jesus, Father. And we're thankful that it's culminated with her coming to know you, Jesus, as her personal Lord and Savior. And we thank you for the public testimony she's given today. And we pray, O Lord, that we would all be motivated as we worship this morning and as we leave this place to continue to take the gospel, to continue to pray for others, and to continue to teach your word and invest in people's souls. The life-saving, transforming power, Lord Jesus, of your saving grace. Uh, Lord, we, we celebrate you, Jesus, this morning, and it's our joy to continue to worship you. For it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. In the late 1930s, um, there was a uh, the Spanish uh, Civil War, 36 to 39, roughly. There was a nationalist um, general named Mola, M-O-L-A, General Mola, who did a radio um, interview. And during that interview, he used a term called the fifth column. He termed the fifth column. He said, we have our four columns of troops that will come into Madrid. Um, but we have a fifth column already there that will rise up when we arrive. And he was right, the resistance. <clears throat> And so that term, the fifth column, took hold uh, in many, many uh, government, uh, particularly military circles, and as well as in other places and used in other ways. <clears throat> there would be some supporters inside uh, the cities for the external attack that's coming from the outside. Fifth column, by definition, now has a definition since he used it. A group of people who undermine a larger group from within, usually in favor of an enemy group or nation. Their work is clandestine, um, overt. Um, forces gathered in secret that are going to mobilize when the, when the outside attack happens. Now, you may recall World War II, Japanese Americans were mercilessly placed in intern, internment camps after Pearl Harbor here in America because they were feared to be the fifth column already here in America. That proved to be untrue. So the term is used over and over again. Ernest Hemingway, who was actually in Spain during the Spanish Civil War and reporting on it, also wrote his only play while there, and it was entitled The Fifth Column. 
Peter talks about the fifth column and has been for some time now. You want to label it that here in Second Peter 2. Um, about the false teachers who have infiltrated the church. They rise up and in due time when the outside force, Satan, says go. Peter describes false teachers in detail in this particular chapter as we begin chapter 2. So that Christians, you and me and those that are reading his letter, all those who've read this letter, can recognize the characteristics of the fifth column or the false teachers and their methods. The greatest sin of Christ rejectors and the most damning work that Satan does is misrepresentation of the truth and the consequent deception that comes along with that. Nothing is more wicked than someone who claims to speak for God to the salvation of souls when in actuality they speak for Satan to the damnation of souls. It's a sad thing. So turn in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 2. And if I was writing a book and I finished chapter 1 and I started chapter 2, I would not start with the word but. This is where, this is one of those places, and there are a few of them, but there are a few of them. One of those places where chapter separation is not helpful. That's uh, editors and translators put those things there for you and I to be able to find verses easier and chapters easier. But it's not helpful in this case because it's a continuation of a thought we've already seen. Look at verse 19 at the end of chapter 1. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Doesn't it make sense not to say, okay, now chapter 2. Yeah, Peter even hints in verse 16 of the previous chapter. We did not, we did not follow cleverly devised myths, good description of false teachers. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Apparently, those things were already going on, myths and false stories circulating in the Christian community. 
So he explains... He explains that what is the necessary ammunition does the church need to understand and fight against false teaching. In chapter 2, particularly, he reveals uh, the details of the work of those who are false teachers. He begins to show their objectives there in verse 1. And what he says in verse 1 kind of flows over into verse 2. And uh, then, it, then it, the result of their activity and then their destruction flows over into the first part of verse 3 as well. And then he gets to the detail of his work. And so he says there in verse 1, but... False prophets also arose among the people. The people is the New Testament term for Israel. It's the term we see in Scripture, particularly the New Testament for Israel. Israel had their great prophets, Isaiah. And while I drink, you should be naming them. Jeremiah. Ezekiel, and on and on and on. But some false prophets arose among the people. Deuteronomy 18.20, God says a false prophet is one who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods. That same prophet shall die. From the Old Testament, very early on, we get a negative picture of false prophets. Jeremiah speaks of their callousness, their desire for popularity in chapter 6. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. Prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They've healed the wound of the people lightly saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Jeremiah also compares false prophets to Sodom in Jeremiah 23 14, and we see Peter makes a comparison a little bit later. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Now, make note that, that we're walking lies. They walk in lies. They commit adultery. He's talking about the sensuality of their speaking. They don't walk the walk. We see that in these verses as well. People that God pours His wrath on, Ezekiel 22, 28, and her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken... Greedy for gain, Micah 3:11. It heads, its heads 
give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. And worst of all, they lead people astray to worship other gods. This is a rather long passage, five verses from Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. You remember that, by the way, brothers and sisters, when you turn on the TV and that preacher's on there. The Lord your God is testing you to whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. That prophet or that dream of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, there will be people who come up to you and say, let's build a golden calf. And many of you will say, sure, let's do it. And those prophets who are false, we see from those passages, are false for two reasons. First of all, their message. Secondly, they claim to speak for God. And just as there were false prophets also arose among the people, meaning Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter's point is that Satan is always, Old Testament, New Testament, even today, Satan has always endeavored to infiltrate groups of believers with the deceptions of the false teachers. Now, it's interesting. Just I'll make a quick point to you here. He goes from prophets to teachers. You know why he does that? There aren't any more prophets. He goes from false prophets of the Old Testament to false teachers. Prophets have gone by the way. They're only false teachers. And there will be false teachers among you. And that's the church he's writing to. He's already said in verse 20 of the previous chapter, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. But they're coming. Pay attention. Peter repeats the warning that Jesus gave about the last days back in Matthew 24. And Jesus answered, answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead you astray. And then later in that verse, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Writing to Timothy, Apostle Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul, uh, well, we see Peter, Paul, John, 
and Jude all deliver that same message that Jesus delivered back in Matthew 24. Deceit has always been a major weapon in Satan's bag of ammunition. Deceit. He's mastered the art of twisting the truth to serve his own purposes. And the end result bears some resemblance to the original truth, just enough to make it believable, but today it stands as heresy. We call it that. Peter called it that. As far back as Eden, Satan has revealed that his nature is a nature of deceit. False teachers are illegitimate sons and daughters of the devil. And here in verse 1, he makes three statements about false teachers. First of all, he says, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. And we know who they are even today. We know that they parade themselves as Christian pastors and Christian teachers and Christian evangelists. And yet, it's secret. Peter says, secretly, they bring in destructive heresies. They're, they're, they're subtle in their teaching. Their de- deceptive teaching um, causes the, especially the ignorant, the, 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 the biblically ignorant believer uh, to fall by the wayside. Because the biblically ignorant believer wouldn't notice the subtleties of this secret message. Satan's a master deceiver. And it isn't even that their, their, their teaching is secret because a false Christian teacher is not going to come out and say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Is he? It's the deceptive nature of their teaching that's hidden and secret. They're not going to announce themselves to be false teachers. The parallel to Jude uh, is striking here. Just one verse, Jude 4. Pretty much the same wording. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. I put secretly there just to compare the words. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Secretly bring in destructive heresies. Literally heresies of destruction. Marked by destruction. And that the Greek word there for, that we translate destruction means damnation. Damnable heresies. Now that word wasn't always a negative word. Heresy um, originally meant simply choosing. Choosing a side or, or a school or a school of thought. Uh, it wasn't necessarily false or, or necessarily negative in a sense. Uh, the result was, is, you, you know, I choose this school of thought, and so I sort of separate myself from everybody else, and, and that word evolved. Originally, it wasn't necessarily, like I say, negative. We see in Acts 5.17, uh, 
and the high priest rose up and all who were with him. That is the party of the Sadducees. Well, that word party is the same word in the Greek that we've translated heresies here in Second Peter. And you see that separation even get greater as we move on. Acts 15.5, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up. Party, it's the same word. Heresy. And then Christians were called uh, a, a heresy in Acts 24.5. For we have found this man a plague, talking about the Apostle Paul, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's the same word. Heresy, sect. Sect of the Nazarenes, calling Christians heresy. And then only later is Christianity declared truth. The word has evolved and other points of view on religion were thought to be as false. That's when heretical became negative in a sense. Especially true of those subversive doctrines which claim to be Christian. And Peter's certainly using this word in a negative sense because he, he defines it as destructive heresies, secret destructive heresies. False teachers work their way into the Christian community with doctrines that are designed to destroy the spiritual and moral lives of those in the church. He uses destruction twice in this verse. These people bring destructive heresies and then they will be destroyed as a result. They enter the church with the purpose of destroying the members with false teaching. That's Satan's goal, destroying the members with destructive heresies, false teaching, and then they destroy themselves. Peter's saying in this first verse, they're really on a suicide mission, these false teachers. Secretly bring in destructive heresies. Second thing he says in this verse, these false teachers also deny the master who bought them. It's another one of those phrases that we're not absolutely sure what Peter means. Ultimately, you're just going to have to ask him when you get to heaven. Occasionally something comes that's hard to determine. Opinions vary on what he means by this. The master denying the master who bought them. And this talk about false teachers goes on some time. So Pastor Greg is going to get up here and talk about false teachers in a, in a couple of weeks. He's already mentioned in the last couple of messages. And he may get up here and he say, friends, Pastor Frank is a knucklehead. And he has permission to do that. We're on the same page theologically, but he, I mean, the, the greatest commentators can't agree on what necessarily Peter's saying here. So we're going to give it a shot. You don't think I'm going to sway away from it, do you? Were they members of the church? Those who the next phrase says they're going to be destroyed because they denied the master who bought them? Were they already 
in the body of believers. If the Lord bought them on the cross, were they saved and they lost salvation? Can you do that? Did Jesus die for the elect? Did Jesus just die for everybody? Well, there are actually two two aspects to this. Number one, this phrase, what does he mean by the pastor who bought them? Secondly, what's the nature of their denial? I mean, fortunately for you, we don't have time for a deep discussion on this. You're welcome. Let me try to give you some thoughts. As Frank Cohn's belief about this phrase, you have permission to disagree, although you'll probably be wrong. The NIV translates this master as sovereign lord. That might be sovereign master might be the best translation. Because the word is despotus. It's where we get our word despot from. One who possesses supreme authority. That's the master. And we know that the one, the master who bought them. So, and, and, and those of us who, who who've been a part of this faith long enough, we know that that uh, the idea of a redemption that is purchased is central to Christian theology. We read in Mark 10:45, "For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a what." Ransom for many. This word bought is used 25 times in the New Testament, but it's used in a commercial setting. Only five times does the New Testament talk about being purchased or ransomed or bought uh, for Christians, the buying of Christians. One of those five examples, 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a price. It really reflects, the master who bought them reflects, it's so hard to use this reflection because of the negative, uh, how negative and horrific it is, but it's the terminology of the slave market. The master would purchase the slaves, and in that New Testament sense that Peter's dealing with and talking about, the master would purchase the slaves in, in, in that sense. And the slave was required to be obedient to, to the master and to do the master's will. That's the sense that he's using this. John MacArthur believes this is an analogy and not a theological issue. The master bought slaves. The, the slaves were owned uh, by the master. And the slaves owed the master uh, allegiance because he was their sovereign these false teachers had a responsibility to submit to God, but they didn't. MacArthur says, beyond this, they are probably claiming that they were Christians, so that the Lord had bought them actually and personally. With some sarcasm, Peter marks such a claim by writing of their coming damnation. Thus, the passage is describing the sinister character of the false teachers who claim Christ but deny his lordship over their lives. I want to carry it a step further. 
We know, Peter knew, the church knew, the church knows that with his blood, Christ bought his people so that they would do his will. That's the connection to the slave market. That with his blood, Christ bought, purchased his people so that they would be obedient to him. False teachers refused to obey the master, refused to obey their sovereign Lord, their sovereign master. They denied him, they rejected him, and in time they were destroyed by him. So we still have the question, can you be redeemed and become lost? Did the false teachers lose their salvation? If eternal life is a gift that you cannot earn, then there's nothing you can do to unearn it. If Christ had given, actually given them salvation, they never would have fallen away. That's a truth that's taught throughout the New Testament that we can't argue, we can't disagree with. If Christ had given them actual salvation, they never would have fallen away. Scripture teaches that those Jesus has given eternal life to shall never perish. John 10:28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So what is Peter saying here? He's saying, I believe the death of Christ was sufficient to redeem the entire world. The death of Christ was sufficient to redeem all of humankind. But Scripture teaches that it's only efficient Efficient. It's sufficient to redeem all of mankind. He bought the entire world. For God so loved the world, but his death is efficient only in God's chosen people. The elect. Those are the people he's writing to. Very first verse of First uh, Peter to those who are elect exiles, the elect. Those are the ones he's speaking to. We cannot use one verse of Scripture to affirm the doctrine of Arminianism, and many people use this verse. We can't use it at the cost of denying all the doctrines of grace that we see throughout the New Testament. Christ's redemption was sufficient to save every single human being, but salvation is only applied to God's chosen people. Because, frankly, if Christ died for everyone, if Christ died so that everyone would be saved, he failed. Everyone is not saved. So these false teachers, these false professors of Christ were never a part of God's chosen people. In this context, we see that they falsely professed Christ, but never a part of the church. Peter says later in this chapter, verses 20 and 21, they profess the name of Christ, for if after... 
They have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They knew our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They were again entangled in them and overcome. The last state had become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness. They knew the way of righteousness. Then after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Ultimately, they rejected the one who bought them. And Peter reminds us they were destroyed as a result of it. John writes about these people in some way. In 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and it might become plain that they all are not of us. Their denial shows that they were not redeemed. They were not of the elect. Further, one final thought. The truth that Christ's death is sufficient for all, yet applied only to the elect, still benefits all of mankind still benefits all of humanity because there is common grace. We don't have time to get into all this. There is common grace in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there are benefits still. Second point in this phrase, in some way, the false teachers were denying the truth. Now, again, I alluded to this earlier. They weren't publicly proclaiming their unbelief. They would have failed in their, in their false teaching if they had done that. They couldn't do that. They were passing themselves off as believers. They do that today. That would take away any credibility they would have for leading people astray. What happened and what happens today, they denied by their lives what they professed with their mouths. And their hearts were dead. They didn't walk the talk. This is the denial that's so devastating to the church of Jesus Christ and has been for 2,000 years. Those who openly deny Christ, they declare Christ, but they openly deny Christ by clearly placing themselves out of the believing church in their lives, by their lives. Those who say, yes, I believe, and they live out just the opposite. Those are the real deniers. Jesus told us about those deniers. Matthew 7:20. you will recognize them by their fruits. Hey, they talk the talk. They just don't walk it. And it's not that black and white. It's not that cut and dry. A person, the way a person lives is still a reliable indicator of their commitment to truth. You got that? The way a person lives is still a reliable indicator to their commitment to truth. 
like I say, it's not always black and white. There are subtle ways that Satan uses false teachers to deceive. You have those who claim Christ, but they don't get specific about who they believe Christ is. They claim Christ, but they don't believe the Christ of Scripture. They've created some Christ in their heads, and it comes out of their mouths, but it's not the Jesus Christ of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then, there are the, like I mentioned earlier, the biblically ignorant who just fall for it out of their ignorance, out of their desire maybe for entertainment at church. Hey, my church is entertaining, makes me feel good. They use the Bible. Fortunately, they just pick and choose the happy parts that make me feel good. Sing songs, mention Jesus every now and then. In fact, mentions Jesus over and over and over in the same verse 12 times. So I don't really care what my preacher or teacher believes about Christ. It just makes me feel good. Then you tumble down that slippery slope. Let me give you one example of Satan's deception. Peter didn't have to deal with this kind of heresy for a variety of reasons, but it's the same heresy nonetheless. It just takes a different form. See how many people I can make mad now. I'm not a name called. I typically don't call out names. This is just an example that I think is important. And the reason I don't call out names typically is because let's focus on the Bible. Let's focus on the text. Aside from the obvious heretical universalism in that book, The Shack, a wise biblical believer might go and watch the movie and read the book for entertainment. That's fine. Whatever. I won't. To me, it's a religious Hallmark movie or Touched by an angel on steroids, I don't know. And that story might not sway you away because it's just it's a it, it's a novel, it's a story. But I've talked to a number of people who called themselves Christian and, and they loved it. Popular, feel good religious book and film. But what if that author who wrote that decides to write a serious book about God? Not a novel. And what about William Paul Young saying this in that book? The good news is not that Jesus has opened up the possibility of salvation and you've been invited to receive Jesus in your life. The gospel is that Jesus has already included you into his life into his relationship with God the Father and into his anointing in the Holy Spirit. The good news is that Jesus did this without your vote and whether you believe it or not won't make any won't make it any less or more true. No repentance, no belief, no trust necessary. Then in the book, 
He anticipates that he would be accused of universalism. And so he goes on to say, are you suggesting that everyone is saved? That you believe in universal salvation? That is exactly what I'm saying. Every human being you meet is a child of God. Thus, hell isn't separation from God, but simply the pain of resisting the salvation we have and can't escape. And death doesn't result in final judgment, but simply introduces, quote, a restorative process intended to free us to run into the arms of love, whatever the heck that means. And there's more. That's just one example. I wanted to give of many I could give, and we could tear that apart scripturally. And some of you here, Crowd this size. Some of you here watch that same stuff on TV. You watch those false teachers, and I'm not saying every Christian preacher on TV is a false preacher. That's not true. And some of you send them money, too, to support their ministries. They teach equally heretical things. You're caught up in it. Quite possibly could mean your destruction. But, oh, he wrote that sweet novel, The Shack. Let me buy that book he wrote about God. And there it goes. Guess what the title of that book is? Lies We Believe About God. Or there are those that Satan uses who don't know they are heretics because they don't know anything. They may have some leadership skills and they may have some speaking skills and they went to youth camp one day and said, I'm going to be a preacher. Never taught, never trained. Those are the guys you go up to them and you say, what seminary did you go to? And they'll tell you that isn't important. If you hear that, you run as fast as you can in the other direction. It doesn't have to be seminary. Be Bible college, they could be trained under a godly pastor. Doesn't matter to me, but if they blow off education, run as fast as you can. Further, if their education is from certain places, you need to be wary. Even me. You went to one of our Baptist seminaries before the 1980s, like I did. You should ask a lot of questions about their Christology. Now, there are not many of us old guys left, but there are some. That's for Baptist preachers. There are other schools you question more. When Peter says denying the sovereign Lord or denying the master, he's talking about the Jesus Christ of Scriptures. Mormons don't affirm that. Jehovah's Witnesses don't affirm that. But they, we know they're heretics because they, their stated doctrine is to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That's clear. All false religions, remember this, all false religions have an unbiblical Christology every time. You can bank on that. But what about all those false teachers in the church leading people away from the truth? That's what Peter's dealing with here. Bottom line is denying the master reveals the depth of their crime and their guilt 
as false teachers. Peter warns false prophets deny the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Their heresies may include denying the virgin birth, which I had professors at a Southern Baptist seminary in the 70s that did that. Denying the virgin birth. Denying the deity of Christ. Denying the bodily resurrection. I remember a professor talking about that and this little... This, this little Baptist boy from Charleston being shocked. Fortunately, I had good training in a good church with a Bible teacher. Second coming of Christ, on and on and on. But the basic error is they will not submit their lives to the rule of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, the third thing he says about false teachers They bring upon themselves swift destruction. It reminded me of Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The day will come when they bring destruction on themselves. We don't know when. Might be after we're gone. But even in this church, your teachers and elders and preachers don't live out what we proclaim. It'll eventually come tumbling down around us. Destruction follows the denial of the Lord, the sovereign Lord, not with our mouths, but with our lives. The day of reckoning will come. And with that, the disaster for those who have spread a false Christianity and and the battlefield is just going to be littered, just littered with the bodies of those who fell for it. And that leads me to one more warning as we close out. Pastors say as we close out, to get you just to hang in there just for a few moments. We can talk about false teachers all day long. And we will for many sermons after this, throughout this chapter. But ultimately, those false teachers, they do have to answer for what they have taught and for their own actions and their own lives. We, if, uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen holds true. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they're keeping watch of your souls as those who have to give an account. They have to give an account. But ultimately, the Christian who falls for it is responsible for themselves. You can't just point fingers at the bad teaching. You can't just point teachers at that pastor who taught that false doctrine. You're responsible for yourself, believer. You're responsible for watching that heretical trash on TV. 
You think they're so great. Test it. Just test it. Because eventually Satan will nudge his way in. And eventually Satan will lead you further astray. And all of a sudden you're not in church here anymore. You're just going to stay home and watch that stuff. It's dangerous. It's deadly. And frankly, we're just getting started. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. For Peter's desire to warn the church. So that we might not fall. We might not go astray. So God, teach us to test it. Give us a hunger for your word. Our desire to satisfy the spiritually hungry. The all-sufficient word of God. Lord, may may we desire that. May we have an understanding what it means to know that all-sufficient Word in our lives so that when those false teachers come our way, we will recognize immediately by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is not the truth. Open our eyes to see you and you alone. And Father, if there's one here who's trapped in their love for a particular false teacher, Make them aware that it is false. Give them the hunger to get in your word more so that they might know the truth and not fall away. Do that in our lives this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.